morning, C4 Church. Oh, oh, people killing me. Good morning, C4 Church. There we go. Good morning. Glad you're here this morning. Glad that many of you are watching online from across Canada and around the world. We're just glad that you're joining us here today. Uh, as Pastor Josh just said, we're still in the book of John. And so if you've got your Bible this morning, physically or virtually, you've got a tablet or an iPhone or just an old school Bible, I uh, would love you to turn or navigate to John chapter 6. And that's where we're going to be, be today. Food. It's a serious part of our life. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Whoa. Mm, all right. If you don't have it, you die. We celebrate it as art in our culture. We have whole TV stations dedicated to it, right? The Food Network. We watch people do crazy things with food. They make it less complicated, more complicated. People get voted off the island. It's a whole thing. We love it as luxury. We use it actually as addiction in our culture to cover pain. Then we join support groups and gyms to help us overcome what we've eaten. Food in our culture is everywhere. In other cultures, it's hardly found. We think about it, we dream about it, and we are very, very opinionated about food. Just do this. I did this a few years ago on a Christmas Eve. Turn to your neighbor right now and tell them your favorite flavor on pizza and tell them your worst, the one you hate the most. Just do it really quick right now. Go. Do it now. Turn to your neighbor you don't even know. Just do it. Right. Okay, hold on. I'm always shocked when it... Do you hear how loud you all just got? Like, this is intense. Now, if you just did it on the GO train, we're really impressed with you. If you just turn to a neighbor and they have no clue what you're talking... I like pepperoni, 911 stalker. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for doing that. Or if you're on an airplane, it's an air marshal may be dealing with you. Anyway... But we're opinionated about food. We, we're, we're so connected to it because it's so essential to who we are as humans. But there's an obvious thing about food that we all know about, but don't very, we, reflect, we reflect very little uh, on it. That is food, after it's eaten, it's gone. And we get hungry again. One of the best examples of that is this. This is my experience. Every time I go to an American or Canadian Chinese food place, not the real deal, not dim sum, that's the good stuff. I'm talking about the buffet where you eat too much, you commit the sin of gluttony. You know what I'm talking about? Two hours later, aren't you always hungry? I don't understand why it is with that, but that is a great example of the reality of food. You eat it, and then you're hungry very quickly again. But see, as human beings, we in our very essence want things that last. We, as, as a human family, for 10,000 years of recorded history, continually through songs and poetry and through war and politics, we are searching desperately for something that has eternal value, something that connects us to eternity. That is one reason why Jesus, of course, truly came to his day and comes to ours, to show us that certain things will never fulfill us because they do not last. Really, Jesus is revolutionary because he shows up on the human scene to remind us that our view of life and, and, our, and, and our view of, of existence is empty. It's defective. See, Jesus comes along and he says, I have come to bring you food, and it is food from heaven. He has come to reveal who he is and what he has to give, and he and what he brings never, ever runs out. Food. Jesus is going to talk a lot about food in this passage today. But before we get to food, something else happens first. 
Do you remember where we were last week? Jesus and his disciples are utterly exhausted because they are so wildly popular. I said last week, it's like Justin Bieber shows up. If he showed up here today, we'd have very serious problems in this church. Jesus is attaining such wild popularity that that is the modern equivalent to what was taking place. Jesus shows up in a town and thousands of people descend around him, not because he can sing really well or because he's on some amazing, no, no. He is coming and he is healing the sick and he is casting out demons and no one, no one has ever taught this way. And he and his disciples are exhausted from the in and out day after day of being so wildly religiously popular. Remember, Jesus had tried to get his disciples away from the crazy. And so he gathered them together and said, listen, let's go. Let's have a Florida moment. Let's go across the lake and spend some time. Last week, when we got to this part of John, they arrived and over 10,000 people showed up. And it says that Jesus had compassion on them. He chose to suffer with them. And so he taught them. He confronted the unbelief of his own disciples. And remember, he took two little sardines and the equivalent of five large crackers, and he fed over 10,000 people. At that moment, the crowds were elated. This was their guy. They had been waiting since the book of Deuteronomy for this type of person to show up. And so what do they do? They say, Jesus, we're going to make you king. You're going to overthrow the Romans and you're going to restore our rightful place on earth. Jesus will have nothing to do with it. Lucifer offered him that already and he already had said no. I have not come to do that. So what does Jesus do at the height of his ministry? I want you to catch this this morning. Jesus is now at the height of his ministry. The feeding of the 5,000, that's men plus women and children later. That is the only miracle shared by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the ultimate experience from a human perspective. Matthew, not John, gives us the details of how he ends that day. In Matthew 14, it said, interesting word, see it? Immediately. Immediately, Jesus, I love this next word, made, commanded, forced his disciples into the boat to go ahead of him to the other side. And then what does he do? He dismisses the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up to that mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. So, the disciples have had their biggest ministry day ever. And Jesus shows up and says, leave now. They obey Jesus. They leave. The mega crowd suddenly leave. And then watch what happens next. If you're in John, it's John 6, 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. Why? Well, Jesus told them, get lost. I love you, but leave. Where they got into a boat and they set across the lake to Capernaum. Now, can you imagine the conversation in the boat that night? Really think about this. Can you hear Philip talking to Peter? Guy, seriously, he just fed 10,000 people. And we helped him. I mean, we were there. This, this keeps getting crazier and crazier by the day. I mean, this is amazing. Sometimes he bothers us because he commands. But wow, this, this is unbelievable. And then I don't get it. He, he shuts it all down. I mean, he tells us to leave. And I, I don't understand why he did that. I mean, this is the logical time. The crowds, the signs, the teachings. I mean, this is the time for things to blow up and really take off. What's, what's his problem? He needs to take his rightful place. Doesn't he know why he's here? And then he tells us to leave, and then he tells the, the, the crowds to leave, and then he takes off again. Peter, John, you're his closest friend, John. Okay, fine. Where in the world does Jesus keep dis- He's like a ninja. He just disappears all the time. What's his problem? 
The conversation would continue back and forth as they rose strong and steady, strong and steady, strong and steady. Immediately, some of them in the boat knew something was wrong, though. See, they grew up on these waters. They were sons and grandsons and great-grandsons of fishermen. This was their life. The air always shifts before a storm. The smell always changes before this takes place, and it's about to get bad. It's never wise to row in the middle of the night, in the middle of a lake. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, this is before electricity, everyone. There is no running lights. And suddenly, in the midst of pitch black, serious things take place. See, a storm comes up. And suddenly things move from an amazing day of ministry, from that to uncomfortable to actually possible death. It says in verse 16, by that time it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them, and a strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. I've been to the Sea of Galilee, but I learned some stuff this week. It is 686 feet below sea level. Did you know that? And it literally makes a natural rift between the, uh, the Arabic deserts and then over here the Mediterranean Sea. And so here's what takes place. Wind from either direction will come naturally across, dive down in, and uh, immediately make a horrific, dangerous storm. This is like when you're walking downtown Toronto and you're walking between buildings and you get hit by the wind. You know what I'm talking about? Imagine that in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the night, and oh, by the way, you could die. A real storm comes, and now these experienced fishermen are tormented. They are buffeted. The wind is against them. It is dark. The storm is raging. The waves are getting serious, like they're becoming whitecaps. And oh, here's the question we should be asking. Where in the world is Jesus? I mean, they're in trouble because they obeyed Jesus, right? Jesus showed up and said, boys, we're done. You go across there, and and he commanded them. This is the direction they were told they had to go. They would have not been in danger. They would have not been challenged. They would have not had to trust if they had not obeyed. Now they obey Jesus. Now they're in trouble. When they had rowed three or four miles, it says in the script, Jesus saw them and approached the boat. And they saw him. And then it says in Scripture, oh, here it is. He's walking on water. And they were frightened. Uh, That's a nice word. It's Canadian. They were terrified. They were terrified. They're looking. They're experienced fishermen. They're trying to row. And Holy Scripture tells us suddenly Jesus is walking beside them on water. This is not a ghost. This is not the living dead. This is not a demon. This is not some drug-induced illusion. This is not psychological breakdown because, oh, the storm's really bad. No, no. This is Jesus walking on the water. C4 Church, welcome to sign number five in the book of John. And oh, by the way, have you thought about it? Jesus is walking on stormy water. I always had the picture in my mind of like a beautiful glass night, and he's just sort of gliding. No, no. He is walking in the middle of a raging storm. No, he's not walking in some shallow part that makes it look like he's walking. There aren't rocks, and he's deceit. No, no. He's in the middle of the lake. Jesus walks right up to the boat as they keep rowing. Have you thought about that? And he looks at them and says, it is I. Don't be afraid. See that phrase, it is I? Underline it, highlight it, circle it, hug it. It's important. See, this is very significant, and we miss this. In Greek, it is just I am. These are the very words. Actually, this is the very name used by God when Moses has his encounter at the burning bush. Don't be afraid, boys. Why? Because I am. 
I really am God in flesh. Stop fearing. If I've created all things, I can deal with your fear. If I truly am the ancient of days found in flesh, and life and death is truly in my hands, a storm, no problem. Once again, Jesus brings his abundant power to bear on human inadequacy. His voice. That voice always changes everything, every time. Two seconds before, they're wondering if they're going to live and make it through the night. And now Jesus speaks and everything changes. Then they were willing, verse 21, notice it. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Read it again. They invited Jesus in. They willingly said, okay, you can now get in the boat and, you know, stop walking on water. And it says, did you catch it? Right when Jesus sits in the boat, suddenly they're right at the shore. And you and I thought that Star Trek was all that plus a bag of chips because they did the teleporting. Please sit down, Captain Kirk. Jesus invented teleporting. (laughs) Jesus sits in the boat and immediately, immediately they're at the shore. The one that they are sitting with, they are beginning to understand is so much more than they thought. I'm sure they slept that night. But as the next morning dawned, as that new day began, as the sun began to shine on their faces, as they woke up and they realized that last night and yesterday the whole thing wasn't a dream, but the guy sleeping right beside them actually had walked on water, teleported them somewhere, saved them from a storm, fed over 10,000 people with five little crackers. I am sure there's a lot of wow going on. As they're getting their morning Starbucks or whatever their equivalent was, and they're looking at each other, probably pretty quiet going, suddenly it happened again. The same thing that happened yesterday happened again today. That crowd. Thousands of people find them again. And oh, interesting, it's the same crowd from yesterday. Verse 22, you can read along. The next day, the crowd that stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized only one boat had been there and Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. And when they found him on the other side, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, by the way, you probably just read that like I did at first and and misread it. This is not a nice like, hey, Jesus, where you been? It's like, excuse me, you had no right to leave us. Why do you keep eluding us? We told you. We are here to make you king. Notice the contradiction in their hearts. It's expressed in their language. At one moment yesterday, they're calling him the prophet, the Messiah, the one who is divinely appointed. And now today he's just rabbi, very special teacher. Which one is it? So they confront Jesus and question him. And now they're waiting for a response. Remember, this is a big crowd. The question That question is so filled with so many agendas and assumptions, and in their opinion, the fate of a whole nation is resting in the balance. And what does Jesus do? He totally ignores them. Love it. Jesus has not come to establish nationalism. He's never come to establish a kingdom that is bought by or brought in by materialism or a military. This kingdom is never based on power, fame, or temporal freedom. See, he has come to bring the reign. He has come to bring the rule. He has come to bring the kingdom of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the restoration of God to the human heart. 
And when the human heart gets changed, then society gets changed. Never, ever mix that order up. See, Jesus is about to actually say to them, what you ask of me, you think it's so right and it's so shallow. Your request actually is coming close. No, it probably is. You're taking the Lord's name in vain. This is how Jesus answered them. Look at the text. I tell you, or he answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw some miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. So you're so earthly motivated, people. You're so moved materially. See, Jesus is going to again try to help this crowd, this massive crowd, move away from what they've just seen, what is temporal. See, he's going to start teaching on food and saying, both types of food are good. There's actual bread and spiritual bread. The stuff you bake, the stuff I gave you yesterday, the stuff you buy at the grocery store will not last. Simple truth. You need food, and if you eat it, it's gone, and if you don't use it, it rots, but it does not last. Jesus isn't against physical food. It satisfies. It's as legitimate as all of our physical needs. Nourishment, clothing, shelter, medicine, sex, exercise, rest. It's how God made us. But see, there's got to be more to life than that. See, the American dream isn't real. There's more than shelter and clothing and food and medicine and sex and exercise and rest. See, we are made in the image of God. Your existence, being a human being, is both a physical and a soulish thing. See, we don't just need physical food. We need spiritual food. We need to be sustained. We need our spiritual needs to be met. Not by us, not by faith, not by religion. No, we need a direct encounter with the living God. So he comes, and he says, and he looks at this crowd, and he goes, You don't work for food that spoils everyone, but for food that endures unto eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. I am going to give this to you. You must trust in me and only me. Why? Because I've been legitimized. God the Father has put a seal on me. See, at his baptism, you remember the story? Jesus, his cousin, John the Baptist, baptizes Christ. And it says when Christ comes out of the water, it says that the heavens were rent, ripped open. And God the Father declared, this is my son whom I love. And then it says that the spirit of God in the form of a dove lightened, sat on him. Why was the Spirit of God placed on Jesus? Because that is God's seal of approval. At that moment, that Holy Spirit, part of God himself, the third person was declaring, this man, Jesus, is God in flesh. He is one with me. And he was declaring this. Are you ready? Not only is he who he claims, but the Spirit of God has been given to Jesus to empower him for ministry. Jesus comes and he says, I am eternal. I am the Son of Man. I have been legitimized. My signs, my wonders, my teachings, God the Father's declaration and the Spirit's power, I am the one you're looking for, not some bread from yesterday. I love their response. So they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Right, this is the question. I mean, just everyone hold on, you online, listen to this. This is the question. This is the religious question we've been trying to solve since the beginning. What do we need to do to get this bread? 
What do I need to give? What must I do? What can I bring the ta- to the table to get this? What godly work must I do? How much credit do I need to build up in God's bank so I can have what you're talking about? How much fasting? How much praying? Uh, how, how, how much tithing? How much going to church? H- how many older folks do I need to help? How many younger folks do I need to mentor? Uh, and it seems so right. I mean, this question feels right to us. But we don't understand how wrong this question really is because it is this question that reveals the true sinfulness of the human condition. See, it assumes self. This question is filled with spiritual blindness. This is actually the worst expression of stubborn control. This is the expression of darkness. What ability do I have to encounter the living God on my own? No. Sin presumes we are not dead. Sin presumes that we do not need an intervention. And sin always tells us we have an ability to connect. Jesus shows up and his response undercuts 10,000 years also of religious tradition. He shows up and he declares with authority and power, are you ready? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. Period. Excuse me? I love one commentator who wrote this, Kent Hughes. They showed up and said, well, what do we need to do physically to get this? And and we just need to believe in him, Jesus responds. The bread that endures comes through faith. Now, he gives this illustration. We can all relate to it, I think. Suppose after church today, or you online, wherever you are, You decide to invite someone out for dinner tonight. You're inviting them to your house, your condo, your house, wherever you live, your basement apartment. And you put on like a seriously great meal. So you find out what they like and you find out what type of meat meat they like. If you're a vegetarian, I'm sorry. Anyway, okay. And you cook it just the way they like it. And then you bring a big tossed salad and steaming baked potatoes with cheese. I don't know why they do that, but anyway, okay. A refreshing beverage and apple pie with ice cream. Like, it's a serious dinner. You've worked hard on this. What a dinner, he writes. Soon everyone's sitting back and patting their full tummies. And suppose when it comes time for your guests to leave, they take out their wallet. And they say, well, how much do I owe you for this? And you'd go half, you're joking, right? Like, you're not insulted yet. You, you don't owe me anything. I, I invited you over to my house because I just want to hang out with you. But wonder if your guests get in your face and say, excuse me, we certainly do owe you for this meal. You know we're not freeloaders, right? How much do we owe you? And then they throw a couple of 20s in your face. Such a mention of a payment would be a grievous insult he writes. And I would add, let alone throwing the money at you. Yet we find ourselves as humans going through life doing exactly that to the living God, declaring to him, how much do I owe you for what you're doing? And we think it's brilliant because we think he's pleased. What happens? Jesus, with great compassion, invites the crowd. He offers them something we sang about, freedom. He says, come to me. You you don't actually need to do anything. Oh, after you meet me, things are going to change. There's lots of good works coming post-relationship, but not pre. 
I've come to give you freedom, never the burden of formal religion in that sense. The burden I give you is trust. You're welcome to come home. The crowd doesn't bite. Either they don't get it, but my suspicion is they do, and they're insulted. And so they come back at Jesus, and they say to their creator these words. What miraculous sign, then, will you give that we can see it and believe? You. What are you going to do, they say? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Okay, here it is. Jesus, awesome teaching. I'm with you. But um, just one request. More proof, please. We just need one more climactic sort of miracle and argument. Just give us one more miracle. Do something today because you're only as good as your last miracle, right? That's what preachers feel about their sermons. Hmm. We haven't forgotten yesterday, but actually that's done now. So thanks for yesterday, and we've really moved on. Don't get us wrong. Yesterday was amazing, but we need you to do one better. Okay, so here's the challenge. Let's gather. What could we? Ah, perfect answer. Let's do this. Jesus, we want you to take on the big guy. Can you see Jesus smiling? Oh, the big guy. Okay. Who's the big guy? Moses. We want to remind you what he did. See, you fed us yesterday, and it was pretty amazing. You know, one meal, 10,000 people, great. But Moses fed Israel for 40 years, six days a week from bread from heaven. Let's see you do that. Bring it. Exodus 16, that's what they're quoting from. And the Lord said to Moses, I will lay down bread from heaven. And the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them to see if they'll follow my instructions. If you go down to verse 14, it says, When the dew was gone in the mornings, thin flakes like frost appeared on the ground on the desert floor. And when the Israelites first saw it, they said to each other, Well, what is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, Oh, this is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. And it was manna. So they walk up to Jesus and they impose on him. They dare to demand God give more evidence than he has given to believe or embrace the one who's standing there. Jesus has no time, by the way, for people stealing God's glory. Have you ever seen that? He turns around and says to them in verse 32, I tell you the truth, uh, side note everyone, it's not Moses who gave you this bread from heaven. It was my father who gives true bread from heaven. Never mix this up. God did this, not Moses. And oh, by the way, then he says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's a good amen moment. So Jesus is now preparing to clear all of this up. You want a sign that's going to last, he says? You want a permanent kind of gift that forever will satisfy the human heart? Fine. It's me. It's me. The signs are given to point you somewhere. Like I said last week, signs within themselves are exciting and profound. They're evidence that God is among you, but never stop with the sign. Where is the sign pointing you to? Why did he break the bread? To point to himself. Why? Because he has come from heaven. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Oh, they miss it again. It's me, everyone. It's me. Okay, let me make this unbelievably clear. Everyone ready? Crayons up. Here we go. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And just like that, Jesus blends faith, belief, bread, food, eternity, himself, and says, everyone, you're looking at him. Me, 
It's me. I'm the food. I'm the substance that you're looking for. It's no mistake, everyone. I was born in the city called Bethlehem, which is called House of Bread. Even the place I was born was preparing the world for my role, for I actually am the bread of life. Did you catch it? I am the bread of life. It's the same phrase used again. In John, there are seven great I am statements. And they reflect who Jesus is. I'm the light. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine, and I am the bread of life. All of these claims is Jesus declaring that he is the same God that met with Moses at the burning bush. I am, and this is what I've come to do. There's a reason why Jesus also calls himself the bread of life. Because he wants to connect it to the Jewish audience with manna. Have you ever thought about manna? Probably not this week. But it comes from heaven. Jesus comes from heaven. It's, it's white as snow. I think someone of importance, I think it was Isaiah who said, the one who's coming will be like white as snow and will make us white as snow. Because he's without what? Sin. And oh, by the way, it's miraculous. It comes from heaven. It's God sent. And oh, here's the real point of it. You have the choice to step over it or pick it up. See, the Israelites could stamp on it or they could say yes. And Jesus comes to the world and his world and our world and says, I am the bread of life. Do you want it? There's no room for doubt anymore. By word, by deed, by sign, Jesus has clearly come. And Jesus is saying, you are invited to come home. You are invited to believe on me. You're invited to be freed by me, to be transformed by me. And as he's saying this, I love how honest and authentic scripture is. But then Jesus says these next words because he knows, because he knows. In verse 36, but as I've told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. You've seen me, right? I fed 10,000 people with five crackers yesterday. You've seen me heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. You've heard my teaching. And he he would say this, it's you all, not me, who keep saying, I've never heard anyone speak God's word so clearly with such power, with such authority. We have never seen anyone like this in four, five, six hundred years. And then Jesus turns around and says, you've seen all this and more and you still don't believe. And then I love what he does and he tells us why. Are you ready? Jesus shows up and tells us why they do not really believe. He gives us the real reason for unbelief. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Look down at verse 44 in chapter 6. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you got to catch this this morning. It will violate so much of what you hold and cherish, but it is true. Salvation is by God, for God, and through God alone. We never come to Jesus because it's a good idea. Jesus is never a good idea to sinful people. Oh, we're attracted to Jesus. The world is attracted. Gandhi is attracted to Jesus. Oprah loves talking about Jesus. The world loves Jesus. Why? Because he is profound. But when you get to the essence of Jesus, and you listen to what he says, he is never a good idea to sinful people. 
Because when you get close to him, when you get in proximity with him, and you begin to see his love is bound to this other thing called holiness, then you have to be honest about your pride, self-sufficiency, sin, and our true condition. No human being wakes up and says, I want to know the living God of heaven and earth. Because we're already saying in our hearts, I am God, I don't need him. The sovereign grace of God is the only way we're even invited to the conversation. You can't talk yourself into faith. It's never by our own doing. We in this church, and most free churches, use phrases like this. We say, would you like to meet Jesus? Or I came to Jesus, or I chose Jesus, or I came just as I am. Anyone hear the song? Or we ask people to be saved. Or in our children's ministry, we say, do you want Jesus to be your forever friend? Is any of that wrong? No, it's phenomenal. It's the heart of the evangelical faith where we talk about a personal encounter between the God of heaven and earth and you. But behind that decision to walk forward, to open that door, another work has already taken place because the living God of heaven and earth has already opened your eyes to even see who Jesus is. This is the real church. Hear this. This is the real and truth about the ground of the foundation, which is our salvation. Salvation is never our business. We never can put human choice at the center of God's wonderful, sovereign, providential work. He invites, he chooses, he marks out our life, and he moves us from death to eternity. That's why in that sign right over there, do you see it? One of our four signs we have on believe, it's over there in the back corner was St. Augustine, who wrote so long ago, God chooses us not because we believe, but that we might believe. All of this, he says in verse 39, is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, how do you look to the Son? He shows you, and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him or her up on the last day. Seriously, church, that's a real amen moment. No, no, serious. Amen. This is everything we are. The will of God, the work of, jo- God, uh, the work of God, the work of Jesus, I love this, is final, it's ultimate. Those that God calls will meet and know his son, guaranteed. They will never not meet him. Our assurance, our position is never based on our hold on Jesus, but on his hold on us. Let me say that again. Our assurance is never based on our hold on Jesus. It's his hold on us. This is the only way we get to go through life with assurance. Some of you join us week after week, and we are so glad that you choose to wrestle with faith here or online. We're a church that's open to struggle, question, and doubt. That isn't against faith, that's for faith. Real faith is grounded in struggle. And many of you are asking the question, maybe not articulating it this way, but you're asking, what do I need to do? And I just want to say to you this morning this. This is the work of God if you're really seeking to believe in the one he has sent. You don't need to pay for dinner. The purpose in this life and eternity is given to you by the free gift of Jesus. The bread of life is to believe on him and he will give you eternity. If you say you believe in Jesus or you are thinking about it, what you are declaring is you know him, you've met him or you're willing to meet him, you trust him and you've placed your confidence in him. You're admitting finally that you're a sinner. You're admitting that you've actually by your actions said, I believed I was good enough and I'm not. I admit that I have been living a life saying to God, you prove it, then I'll follow. And I've realized how dangerous that is. 
Some of you are saying, I need bread that will last. Some of you are saying, I believe now that you are Lord and God and Savior. I welcome your forgiveness. I want to be held by you. I don't want to fear death any longer. I now believe that everything I know about my life, what's happened just before my death and after death, depends on one person, and his name is Jesus. If you have never encountered God deeply, personally, authentically, today is the day of salvation for you are here, and the Lord is giving you the bread of life. What will you do with him? Can you hear the Father calling you now? We'll pray about that in a minute. But I want to end with this. Many of us sitting here and online have crossed the line by God's help and by our willing connection. And as I was praying this week and I was wrestling with what to preach out of this part of John 6, I heard this phrase for many of you. This is God's assurance for you. I want to read back what Scripture says, because it has authority. I don't. The Father gave you to Jesus. I will never drive you away. Can I, can I say that? I will never drive you away. I will never lose any one of you who's been given to me. I will raise you up on the last day, and eternal life is given to you. This is what God sings over this church and all churches. This is his solemn declaration and oath. You will never be thrown out. You will never be driven away. You don't have the power to kick him out. Because once he loves you, he loves you fiercely forever and eternally. Some of you need to hear this this morning because you keep wondering. Stop wondering. It was never up to you. God has looked upon you and said, my child, my child, I have given you to Jesus. You're good. Your identity, your life, your worldview has to be rooted in God's work, never yours. Pastor Joanna sat me down this week. We were talking about a million things as we do. She looked at me and she said, this is, this is good. I said, I know it's scripture. Yes, And she said, but why does it matter on Monday morning? How does this help us accomplish what God has called this church to do in our vision? Great question. She must be involved in connections or something. And as I thought about it, I just want to say a few things and then we're over. See, so many of us, even long-term veterans in our faith, sometimes still wonder if we're in. And we sometimes wonder if he's still with us. And you say, well, what's the connection? Here it is. If you spend your Christian life always looking over your shoulder, wondering if God maybe has let you go, or if your sin was just too big, or you fill in the blank, if you keep wondering what your role is in the holding of your salvation, if you keep looking up and saying, God, did you really give me to Jesus? If you keep going, I'm not really sure that you're going to keep me in. You will never get on to the work of the kingdom. You won't evangelize in power. You will be so self-absorbed, you'll never invite someone to church because you're still not sure if you're in. See, confidence, assurance, is the grounding in which we begin to sacrificially give more money, serve without grumbling, find joy, and radically move beyond our comfort and say to people, you got to get to church because the bread of life is being given out there and you need to meet it like I have. But if you can't say, but I've met it, you'll never sacrifice. Why does it matter? Because we're still navel-gazing in this church, wondering if half of us are in. We're in. Let's get going. We're in. 
If we have encountered the living God, and if we are secure in his sovereign act, why are we still waiting to invite thousands of people to church? Don't you think Jesus is going to show up here? I do. Don't you think that we can go in his authority? Because he's with us. Do we really not believe it? Well, believe it. Because God the Father, before the beginning of time, decided to look at you and say, I cannot wait for you to know my son. Assurance is the grounding for service. Go this week and evangelize. Invite people, whether you have any courage or not. Tell them, get to church. Jesus is changing people. Come, let me serve you. Start praying with an authority you've not prayed on. Don't get bored. Get serious. Get involved in serving Jesus, the living one. How may I serve you more? What must I do to change? What comfortable things do I need to give up in my church, in my experience, in my serving, in my money? What can I do because you've done so much for me? Break my selfishness. Give me assurance that's deep because I want the world to know that Jesus, this bread of life, is still handing himself out and saying, I will satisfy. I want to be like that. I want to be a disciple who's given out the bread when Jesus starts doing it. Oh, Jesus, come and do his new thing among us. Let's pray. Lord God of heaven and earth, give an assurance that violates our theology, an assurance that violates our condition, an assurance that violates our middle-class worldview. Do a work among us, O Lord. Do a work where selfishness dies and sacrifice is normal and evangelism becomes what we do, inviting people, not because we keep thinking that it's up to us, but we're inviting people to meet someone else. Help us, O Lord. Do this new thing among us. Give assurance to many who need it. And we ask this in Jesus' name.